Hello, friends and colleagues. It's Nikki from Full Voice Music. Today's podcast, episode number 78, my special guest is Becca Sampson. Becca is a board-certified music therapist and private voice teacher from Greenville, Michigan. Our conversation today is about adaptive music lessons. Becca is sharing teaching strategies for all of us so we can be more creative and flexible in our music lessons. This ensures students of all ages and abilities greater success in their musical endeavors. Welcome to the Full Voice Podcast, teaching strategies and resources for voice teachers working with young singers. Now here's your host, Nikki Loney. Welcome to the podcast, Becca Sampson. I'm so excited that you are here with me today. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm happy to be here. Today, we are talking about adaptive lessons. So catering the private lesson to students that have special needs. Now, before we dive into that very important topic, I would love for you to give everybody a background. You're a music therapist as well as a voice teacher. So can you just give us a little bit of your journey? Sure. My pleasure. Yes. Uh, So I originally went to school for for voice. I went to Grand Valley State University and I have a Bachelor of Arts in music. Um, And then as I was finishing up my degree, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. And I I applied to several different universities and it just for for actually for several things for uh, vocal pedagogy and for musicology. And it just nothing felt right to me. Um, and then I a friend of a friend brought up music therapy and I did research on it and I just was amazed by how many different populations this could serve. Um, and I applied to Western Michigan University. I got in. I found housing immediately. It just everything fell into place. And it's what I'm supposed to do. Absolutely. Um, I did my internship in a children's hospital. But I truly believe I'm supposed to work with kids and adults with disabilities. The, most of my experience is in that. And I feel like I'm really good at it. I really, really enjoy it. So what's a typical day for you? So I currently am working for a company that provides music therapy for seniors with dementia. Uh, And I just started my own company doing music therapy for kids and adults with disabilities, as well as voice lessons. So I typically in the morning and early afternoon, I'll be in facilities, long-term care facilities, doing music therapy with, with adults with dementia. And then in the evening, I have several students that I have voice lessons. And I only, I only work three days a week because I, I, I have a little boy, um, so I'm with him a few days a week as well. Uh, so it's kind of alternating between these two different jobs. And um, I'm hoping one day down the line that'll just be my, my private practice with mm-hmm. voice lessons. And, um, but it's a brand new company. I just started this about a month ago, and I had too many opportunities to not do it. So, yeah, there we we are. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Congratulations on taking the leap into your own business. I think that it's exciting and terrifying, right? (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. Both of those things. Like, I still get butterflies talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then I'm even more excited that you are here. Um, So, term adaptive lesson. Can we start there? What does that mean? So it's providing a flexibility and creativity in lessons for people with or without disabilities, um, prim- primarily for people with disabilities. That's where most of my experience is. Um, and just 
tweaking their lessons so that they're able to learn those skills, but providing the supports for them to do so. Mm. Um, whether it's for sensory skills, whether it's for attention, just or even physical adaptations right. for them, um, just so that they can be successful in, in their music making. Can we start with, um, let's start with students with perhaps attention uh, struggles. So how would you approach adaptive lessons for someone that's really struggling with their attention? So I would start, um, I think for any session for kids with disabilities, uh, I love a visual schedule, whether writing down what we're going to do that day, or I also love the laminated schedule with Velcro where they can take pictures off um, just to provide that predictability Mm. and also providing a timer, a visual timer. Um, I sent you a link to the the time timer on Amazon. Becca's already sent me some amazing resources. I'm going to list them on our podcast page. Uh, So tell everybody about this timer. This is really interesting. So it's a visual timer and it looks like a regular analog clock, but it's actually a timer for one hour and you can turn it uh, and then there's a there's a red sliver that appears. So I could do a 10 minute period and then the, the person can see visually that there's how much time is left. So the, the kids that who are kind of maybe they obsess about how much time is left, they can visually see it. So they're asking me fewer times in a, in a lesson or a session right. so that they're able to attend better. Um, oftentimes there's a lot of anxiety about uh, ex- expectations. And so that that timer provides that expectation for them, how long that they need to attend for that they have until this is done. Also breaking up activities into smaller chunks. So mm. if a child or an adult struggles with attention, maybe doing really short three to five minute activities and then moving out of something else. Um, I've also worked with a, a young man with autism and he struggled, he struggles with attention. And you know what really works for him? Instead of sitting on a chair or on a bench is sitting on a yoga ball. Oh, nice. And it just keeps his attention by by being able to have that, getting out his energy through sitting on a yoga ball. He's still attending. He's still sitting. Right. uh, But he needs a yoga ball. He just needs that little extra movement to keep him engaged. Exactly. I love that. And with the attention, um, I know that I know that uh, most teachers can appreciate that younger students need uh, the smaller the smaller activities, like broken into smaller activities. But one thing that I've noticed over the last couple of years with some of my older students and even some of my adults, the same rule applies. There's some some students that just need different activities. It's not just the little ones. Yes, that's a good point. Yes. Um, because if, if someone has ADHD as a child, they still will have ADHD as an adult. Right. Um, it just manifests a little differently. Mm-hmm. And agreed, yes, we, we shouldn't yeah put those assumptions on them and instead meet them where they are. How do we start with that? How do we, when we get a new student and we recognize that we need to approach things differently, um, what what are your first steps for kind of establishing what what the flow or the or the lesson pacing is going to be? Good question. I think part of it is just getting to know each other. Um, so I I even at the very beginning, the first lesson or session, uh, I have a visual schedule for them. So and I go over it with them. So for a music therapy session, for instance, I'll say, okay, we're gonna sing this hello song first, and I'll and they will put the picture on the 
on the um, the schedule. And then I might have them pick the pick it themselves mm-hmm. just to give them a little more control over over that their time. Uh, or I choose it for them. And depending, sometimes some kids, it's it makes them more anxious to have to choose it themselves. Oh. Some kids, they it empowers them. They, they there's a lot of things that they don't have control over in their life. Maybe they don't want to be there. Um, so maybe they had a really rough day and they just want to be home. So giving them a little bit of that control back mm. uh, really helps them visualize things and, and establish those expectations. So I'll say, okay, we're going to do a rhythm activity first. So they pick a rhythm or we're going to play the drums next. And so we, we, and so they can visually see what we're going to do that day. Mm-hmm. And then when they're done, they can take it off and they can see that they've completed these things. And it also gives them a sense of accomplishment that they, that they controlled, that they, that they did these things and they did them well. Um, so, and and we do that every day. It's the first thing we do for every lesson or session is we stat, we do that schedule. Um, most of most of the kids I work with, they they pick their own. Mm-hmm. Um, they love that. They really really enjoy having that that control. Um, I think this the schedule is really the key the key part of establishing expectations because they can see, visually see what they're doing every day. Now, how involved are you with parents when creating your your lesson plans and adaptive lessons? How how much information do you get from parents? How do you work with parents? How do they fit into your your lessons? Great question. Um, I often will talk to parents, uh, like do a kind of an, an interview mm-hmm. with them beforehand to ask them what are some things that has been successful with their child, or I might have an interview with the child too. What kind of music do you like? Um, what activities do you enjoy doing at home or at school, out in the community? And I, I, tr- I try to incorporate all those things they enjoy into a lesson or into a session. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I use that 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 first interview to really set the tone for the first few lessons or the first few sessions, and then. I often take about five minutes at the end of every lesson or session to chat with the parents on, and say how great their child did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and also if they have any feedback on what we could do differently, I, that's like, parents are a key part because they know their child the best right. and they know what, what's how, how they're successful and what works for them. Nice. I love that they're involved. Um, what are your primary expectations for your students? Like what? What are your milestones or or markers for success with adaptive lessons? Oh wow, that's a great question. <laughs> so for music therapy, I I set concrete goals. Mm-hmm. So so and so will increase cognitive skills by attending for the duration of an intervention, um, and I might define that. So an inter- the duration might be five minutes, which is um, or a five minutes for. Uh, easy to moderate task um, or three minutes for a moderate to hard task, which is the kindergarten standard, which is Mm. what in in schools, that's what kindergartners should be, should, should be able to do. Um, And so I do have goals like that, but they're all musical for, for kids with, for kids with disabilities and adaptive lessons. So they're not as formal and I just kind of had them in my mind, Mm -hmm. but maybe let's see memorizing a song. Wow. Okay. So yeah. using a song without, without music or I also use adaptive music. Okay. Um, 
memorizing the keys on the keyboard. I do a lot of keyboard work, whether regardless of what what instrument we're teaching or learning. Um, so I, I have d- several different types of of adaptive music. Like I just do letters mm-hmm. at first, and then I also use um, a, a dry erase marker, and I, I write. I actually write on my keyboard. Oh wow! Um, okay. It does it does remove. <laughs> so I'll I'll write octave and then we'll do three octaves the lowest octave is red the middle octave is blue the top octave is green and so they're reading music that it's not only a letter but it's also a color so they have to match what's on the page and it's just providing that basis for reading music and then from there I I, I do a similar thing with notation where my letters are are labeled but also colors and then soon I remove the colors so they can understand um, start to understand lower keys and higher keys. So I, I think moving from each type of adaptive music is a huge milestone because oh, they're wow. learning how to read music. I love that. I love how you integrate colors into that. There's a young lady I worked with with autism, and she she had perfect pitch, extremely musically talented, but she had a really hard time identifying letters. Mm. And so I did shape. I, we, we, she followed shapes and I, I, I drew shapes on the keyboard. And so that was one way for her to read, to read music was to follow shapes instead of letters. Wow. Um, so it really, it depends on the person, but obviously this, 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 uh, young woman was extremely musically talented. Mm. She just needed slight changes for her to be successful. Brilliant. Do you find it difficult sometimes, like when we're working with our students, we really have to be present and really observing them so closely. There's like there's so much um, that our students don't tell us verbally, right? They're they're giving us a lot of physical cues. Um, mm-hmm. How do you stay present and mindful and watching your students? I found in both music therapy and lessons, I need to know the music really, really well, so that if mm. I'm playing, if I'm accompanying them, um, that I'm that's that's in the back of my mind. Right. That if I'm playing piano, if I'm playing guitar to accompany a student or a, or a music therapy client, that 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 has to be on the back burner so I can hear what they're doing. I can see their their body language, which is which is tough to do between lessons and uh, music therapy sessions, planning those things. But I think that's critically important. That's that's our skill, right? Is music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So having music memorized or at least very, very really in our hands or Mm -hmm. whatnot. And I think taking a few minutes at the very beginning of a lesson to just look at their body language, look at their behavior, maybe check in with mom and dad or whoever brought them. Think did, you know, has has so and so had a good had a good had a good day today? Um I've I've done that for several years with both lessons and uh and sessions, just kind of checking in with mom and dad. And then and say, student, would you agree with mom and dad? Did you, know, did you have a rough day today? Um, just to kind of assess where they are at the baseline at the very beginning of a lesson or a session. Thank you. Really great strategy. Mm-hmm. We sometimes get all wrapped up in our own heads about our lesson plans and what we want to achieve that we don't see that student. And a simple question can go so far <laughs> to help us with our lesson pacing. Thank you for that. Can we dive into the sensory processing needs. Can we talk about that? Because I think a lot of of teachers might have students that have these um, 
situations and might need some strategies to help them? Yes, absolutely. Uh, This is something that I felt like I didn't know much about at all when Mm -hmm. I first went into music therapy. So I've done a lot of research on this. Um, And actually, I met with an occupational therapist to Mm -hmm. also learn more about just how to figure out someone's sensory needs and so that I can adapt the environment so that they are successful. Okay. Um, So I do want to put out a disclaimer that as a music therapist, I cannot help someone with autism or with sensory needs change their sensory needs. That's Mm -hmm. specifically occupational therapy. There's actually a specific degree for that. But um, as music therapists or as voice teachers, we can adapt our environments to someone's sensory needs. So there are so we have several different uh, sensory types. There's I'm going to go over five main ones. So there's visual, which is auditory, tactile, touching. Vestibular is our sense of balance, and then proprioceptive is the last one, and it's actually uh, in our joints. It's our, a deep, deep joint feeling. Um, and so people with autism spectrum disorder often have sensory differences than we do. And uh, they either might receive too much information in any of those sensory types or they're receiving not enough information. And so that manifests in seeking a certain type of sensory information or avoiding it. Um, So for visual, uh, a child or an adult might cover their eyes to avoid too much, too much light, too much visual information. They might cover their ears for auditory because they're avoiding it. Uh, they might avoid touching certain things with certain, um, yeah, just avoiding touching certain things. Or a vestibular, they might avoid rocking back and forth. They might not like swings. Mm. It might be scary or uncertain for them to get into bed because they lose where their feet are when they get into bed. Because that's, that's a huge movement, isn't it? Right. To lay back into bed. Sure. And then proprioceptive, a child might uh, or adult might avoid jumping. Um, they might avoid clapping their hands. Also, that's also a tactile thing. And on the flip side, if a, if a person is seeking visual information, they might um, move things in front of their eyes, like flapping their hands in front of their eyes. They offer auditory. They might vocalize. They might slam a door because they need that auditory information. Uh, with tactile, they might clap their hands. They might try try to touch things all the time in 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 an environment in an environment. Vestibular, they might rack back and forth. Um, proprioceptive, a really common thing, especially for toddlers with autism, is they'll climb up on furniture and then jump off because they need that deep, 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 a uh, joint level information. Wow. Um, yeah. So those are just some examples of how a person might seek or avoid uh, information and what that might look like. So with a person with, with these needs, it's if when they're doing these things, it's called stimming. And unless they're hurting themselves or hurting other people, never stop them because they're trying to make sense of their environment when they're doing these things. They're trying to make sense of what's going on around them. I'm really glad you shared that because I know if somebody's not aware their first line might be to actually make them stop. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're trying to compensate for not either, either not receiving enough sensory information or receiving too much. Mm. Um, there are a couple of theories of what, what's going on in the body when that happens. So there's, 
three main points. There's the sensory receptor. So for touch, it's our skin. Mm -hmm. And then at the other end is our brain. And in the middle, there's a, a neural pathway. Okay. And so a, a person, so I, I touch my desk and I can feel all that, all that information. And in my neural pathway regulates how much information is getting to my brain and my brain interprets it. Right. So with someone with a sensory integration or processing disorder, either their neural pathway is giving too much information to the brain or not enough, mm-hmm. or their brain isn't interpreting it. It's quite fascinating. Um, I've read uh, several books on sensory skills, and one of my favorites, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you a link, I can't remember the exact title, but I love that it incorporated peer-reviewed research, but also testimonies from people with autism on what they experience. Um, and so there's one person with autism that mentioned that there were times when information was coming in, but their brain couldn't figure out what sensory type it was, whether it was visual or auditory or tactile, uh, which is, yes. So it can be very confusing to be in a new environment with all those sensory difficulties. There's, There's one young woman I worked with with autism, and whenever she was like on sensory overload, whenever she was overstimulated, she would tell me that it felt like her brain was on fire. Wow. That was her way of describing it to me. Um, and so I knew at that point we needed a break. And her favorite way to do that was to go for a walk. Mm. Um, so we'd take five minutes. I'd set a timer and we'd go for a walk and then we'd come back to the room and then usually finish the, ses- the session. And now for the My Music Staff Minute. Hi, everyone. Katrina here to talk about Document Disconnect for this week's My Music Staff Minute. Does your studio use multiple programs to keep track of your day-to-day business? Do you find yourself losing countless hours scheduling everyone in your Google Calendar while their contact information and billing is stored across multiple Excel spreadsheets, and then you need to flip to your Gmail to contact them? You are not alone. This is a common issue known as document disconnect. Document disconnect is the need for your manual intervention to enter information from one system to another because they do not directly communicate with each other. It causes an interruption in what should otherwise be a seamless process. 81% of business leaders of all sizes of business say they suffer from document disconnect, where tools that were meant to work together do not integrate. Entering information into multiple systems can take up your valuable time and increases the risk of costly input errors. So how do we combat this issue? Find a product that encompasses as many of these tasks into one system as you can. This way, you store everything in one place, and you can manage communication, scheduling, and invoicing without entering everything twice or more times. Trusting all of your information to one computer is incredibly risky in the case of hardware malfunctions, theft, or damage, so be sure to use a cloud-based system to protect you from losing data. Automating aspects of your business is another great way to reduce the time spent on administration, so you can spend more time teaching and less time stressing. My Music Staff can help in your fight against document disconnect. Start your 30-day free trial of My Music Staff today at www.mymusicstaff.com. Stay tuned for next week's tips and tricks on the My Music Staff Minute, exclusively on the Full Voice Podcast. So we'd take five minutes, I'd set a timer, and we'd go for a walk, and then we'd come back to the room and then usually finish the the session. I here in our forums a lot 
and I get a lot of questions and teachers get really frustrated with students who are, and I'm doing air quotes here, fidgety. And it seems to be a big stress for the teacher. What are ways that we can, well, first of all, we now recognize that there's a reason that our, our students are moving because they need to move. They're not misbehaving. We, we understand this now. What are some strategies for students that need that extra movement? Yoga ball, sitting on a yoga ball. That has always been so helpful. Um, there's one young man who he he's, uh, constantly was seeking vestibular information. So the yoga ball was great. And he also had extremely acute vision where he he could he could bounce on that yoga ball and he could read to me out loud wow. because his vision was so acute. He could see so I, I'm convinced he can see a thousand times better than we can <laughs> um, because his brain is just taking in so much information. But he was able to sight like sight read on the piano and <laughs> and then bounce on that yoga ball. Um, and so I might not be able to do that because everything is blurry to me. Right. But for that specific person, it was it was effective for him. I also love to incorporate movement into every lesson, every session. Mm, I love whether that. it's like rhythmic. Um, I have a there's a really great song by Rachel Ramback. It's called Move Your Body Along. Mm. And just uh, it's super rhythmic. It's wonderful. Um, and just doing different types of movement, clapping your hands, stomping your feet. Um, you can, I love doing call and response with rhythms, either on drums. Um, and I, there's a point in the session where we, we always stand up right. to, to do some type of movement and that's getting that vestibular information in this set, standing up and sitting down. Mm. Um, so yeah, I love movement and lots of rhythm, just taking that kind of that break to do some movement too. Always, every session, every lesson. It's good for us, the teacher too, right? To get up and move yes. around. <laughs> Absolutely. It's energizing. <laughs> I actually have I actually have a specific question for one of my students. So I have a student who is very sensitive to sound. I see in her a hesitation to sing because I think loud sounds are just too much for her. Do you have any strategies that I could maybe use? Like I'm very sen- like I'm very sensitive and aware of how loud the piano is when I play or mm-hmm. if we're singing to a track. Um, she's not comfortable doing a lot of percussive activities or even clapping. And I see her when she mm-hmm. claps, like she, she closes her eyes and, and it's kind of a, this is uncomfortable for me kind of reaction. This young woman I worked with, um, with autism and she very, very seldom could she, um, listen to recorded music, uh, without getting overstimulated because there are often, there's often feedback that we can't hear that they can. Mm. Um, so I, I, depending on the person, maybe mm. they need that feedback, but if they're getting overstimulated with recorded music, I typically avoid it. I try okay. to use live, live mm-hmm. music as much as possible. Sometimes I never use the pedal in my sessions because all of that oh. echoing, all of that resonating is too much information. Okay. Um, so it's 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 a tough balance because you want it to be musical, mm-hmm. but you also want to meet that person's sensory needs. So there's there have been sessions where I never use the pedal because it's okay. too much information for that person. Um, also, like noise dampening headphones, like we're wearing right now. Oh, um, I promise you, they, if she if she is really sensitive to sound, she can. I promise you, she can still hear. Mm-hmm. But that might help her just to take a little more control over her environment. Yeah, I've, I've worked with several people who they, that's just, it's more comfortable for them. 
uh, and it's still there's still getting you know enough information, but it's being a little more controlled. Uh, as with the light, too, uh, the young man I mentioned with the super acute vision. Mm. Um, in my in my old office, I had very bright lights on the ceiling. Can't remember what type of they're called. Um, but for his for his sessions, I would turn those lights off, and I'd have really really warm, uh, just regular lamps that I turn on in mm. my office. Um, because that was, he, he, and I'd always give him that option. I'm like, would you like the lights, the big lights on or off? And he always said off because oh. the, the softer lights were just much more comfortable to him. And with the tactile, the clapping, I actually, there was a young girl, she would clap her wrists. Oh. Um, and I, and I think, cause we have more sensory receptors in our hands and our tongue too, but in our hands and anywhere else on our body. So that might be just too much information for her. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe maybe tapping her wrists like this or m- maybe stomping feet would be more comfortable for her because there um, there are t- there, there could be times where it, maybe clapping her hands, her brain could be interpreting that as painful or as noxious. Well, that's the um, response I see in her face. I guess yes. it, it looks like it's painful. Thank you. I I would have not have thought that. Thank you. I have so many more strategies to take back to my studio. This is absolutely wonderful. Um, can you share uh, with the listeners perhaps um, some of the victories that you've had in your studio with a student where you've made a connection or something's just really clicked for them? I think those, those stories are so inspiring. Yes, there's a young young man I've worked with. Um, he has some physical disabilities, and but he loves music. He loves to play the guitar. And since he had worked with me, he performs regularly at his church playing guitar. And this is a person who's extremely shy. Um, he didn't have much confidence. And so to see him want to do this in front of his in front of his church on a regular basis, his parents has just told me how thankful they are that he now wants to do this, that he's making more friends um, and he wants to share his talent with people. Uh, That's one huge, huge victory. Mm -hmm. How, uh, when you started with him, what were some of the challenges that, that you had? Um, he had a lot of control in his left hand, but not his right hand. So I had to adapt his guitar in order for him to be successful and to play different chords. Um, and then uh, I used a a slightly bigger pick for him to be able to hold on to and thicker, thicker pick for him to hold on to. And I think honestly, the biggest thing was just getting to know him and building rapport because he's naturally a shy person. Mm -hmm. Uh, but once I got to know him, he never stopped talking. It was wonderful. Uh, <laughs> um, but it was it was figuring out how to make the guitar. He loves to play piano too, right. but to 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 adapt the guitar and the piano so that he could play with both hands. I didn't want to just ignore his right hand because he had some spasticity in it. Mm. Um, I I because he still has function in it. It's still his hand. Um, and we also his guitar is he's he's a left-handed guitar. Uh, so flipping, flipping the string, flipping the guitar. Um, so just making those adaptations so that he could still be successful with both hands. And um, 
like I've created, like made my own adaptations. Like I made these um, raised stickers to put on the piano mm-hmm. so he could so he could play the keyboard uh, with minimal strength. It, it was kind of like um, like a lever for him to press mm. almost. So he could play with his left, his right hand as well as his right. Like his right hand, he could alternate fingers and play melodies, uh, but his right hand was was had just had too much spasticity. So just making those those adaptations to the piano so that he could use both hands. I we were talking a little bit before uh, we started recording, and and one of the things I was saying is that. Um, Adaptive lessons aren't just for people with special needs. Like really in a private lesson, we have this amazing opportunity to cater to each individual. Uh, Is there any other things you would like to share with people to inspire them to be more creative in their approach? Yes. uh, First, I'd like to say that regardless of ability or disability, we all learn the same way. We build skills through repetition. Um, it's just, it's up to, uh, it's up to us to help, help that person obviously learn these skills. And, uh, through that, we need to be, we need to be creative. We need to be flexible. And those are things that we can be better at too. Um, Mm. creativity and flexibility are also skills. It's just there. I'm sure there, I know there are people who are extremely creative and it feels like they've had that since birth. Mm -hmm. Um, but let me tell you, I'm a list-making type A personality, <laughs> and I've, I've gotten better at being creative. And I actually, um, on my website, under the resources, in a couple of days, I'll be having uh, a little freebie on, on how I, I generate creativity in my lessons and in my sessions. Um, and it'll be a, a freebie, a little handout. Um, it's actually, it's so funny. It's, it's a list of things I do to generate creativity. Love it. Um, oh, good. Great. That's wonderful. I will pu- I'll put a link to that. Um, I'm going to put a link to your website, but we'll definitely put a link to that freebie. That I think that would be so helpful uh, for teachers. Th- thank you. Awesome. Yes. Um, so yes, creativity and flexibility, those are things we can we can get better at yeah. as teachers. And if there's any music therapists listening, for music therapists too. <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for sharing your passion and your work. I am so excited for your new business, your new teaching studio, and um I, uh, I'm going to put a link to all of your information. Uh, would you, would you be willing to, um, receive any questions from any of my listeners? Can I, can I, people reach out to you with questions? Yes, absolutely. I would love to answer any questions. Wonderful. Becca, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, for sharing some strategies that I think are essential for all of us. Uh, like with so many of my wonderful guests, uh, perhaps in a year or so, we could have you back to share some more wonderful strategies and, and how how everything is growing in your business. Would you be willing to do that? Absolutely. I'd be honored. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much. This is great. Wonderful. A very special thank you to Becca for her time and talent and inspiration today. If you would like further information uh, and links to any of the resources mentioned in today's interview, please visit our podcast page. You can find the direct link in the show notes. I would also like to thank the wonderful people at My Music Staff for their business tips. And I would like to thank you 
the listener. Your time is so precious and I appreciate that you have spent it with me. I'm excited. We have some wonderful guests coming up in the next few weeks. You do not want to miss an episode. So make sure you subscribe to the Full Voice Podcast in your favorite podcast app on your phone, computer, or tablet. As always, I am wishing you inspired teaching and happy singing. Thank you for listening to the Full Voice Podcast. For more information and teacher resources, please visit our website at thefullvoice.com. May my canoe music. Canoe music.ca.